How's it going? I'm Xander Fryer, just another millennial corporate dropout turned entrepreneur. Since quitting my day job as an engineer just over four years ago, I built a multi-million dollar coaching business, mentoring seven-figure business owners, professional athletes, award-winning musicians, Hollywood actors, best-selling authors, and hundreds of aspiring entrepreneurs. I truly believe that when we couple the right knowledge with a strong desire for action, anything is possible. But most of us are never given the right knowledge, the shit you don't learn in college. The Sidlik Podcast shares interviews from the world's most successful people in business, finance, sports, health, and entertainment in order to help you live a life filled with more money, more meaning, and more freedom than you ever thought possible. Get ready to learn the shit you don't learn in college. Hey, how's it going, friends? Welcome back to another episode of Shit You Don't Learn in College. Today, we've got Jeff Church on the show. Now, Jeff is the former CEO and co-founder of Suja Juice and the current CEO and co-founder of Rowdy Energy, the clean energy drink company uh, with NASCAR legend Kyle Busch. With over 20 plus years of experience building and selling eight and nine figure businesses, uh, he is the entrepreneur that builds empires. He's also summited five of the seven tallest peaks in the world and done it all while building an amazing family. You're not going to want to miss this episode. In it, we're going to dig into uh, why entrepreneurs are not born. It's a skill set that you can learn. And we're going to talk about the late night commercial that actually changed his life and helped him uh, become an entrepreneur. We'll dig into the importance of taking a swing at the entrepreneurial plate before you feel ready. And then something most people don't want to talk about, the truth about how tough it is to build businesses and why so many fail uh, and Jeff's the man to talk about it because he's done it multiple times and succeeded multiple times. And don't forget, we only spread our message when you share this knowledge with others that need it. So if you enjoy this episode, please share it on your social and tag at Xander Fryer. And don't forget to subscribe to the to the podcast on iTunes and give us a five-star rating so you don't miss any other great episodes. And if you've gotten any value from this podcast, don't forget to go to sidlickbook.com to grab your pre-sale copy of Shit You Don't Learn in College book open now. Uh, it'll be an absolute game changer. Everybody who buys the book during this launch is going to get over $3,000 in bonus trainings and programs. So you want to go to sydlicbook.com now and check it out. All right. How's it going, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Shit You Don't Learn in College. Today, we've got my guest, the CEO and co-founder of Rowdy Energy, Jeff Church. Rau uh, Jeff, welcome to the show. Hey, Xander. Nice to be here. Thanks thanks so much for uh, having me. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. Now, uh, Jeff, I, I have the pleasure of, of knowing you and hearing about you all the time because uh, your amazing son, Joshua Church, is my amazing director of operations. Um, but I'd love to just kind of kick it off with uh, you know, maybe maybe three or five minutes of of your history getting into entrepreneurship. You've you know you've been in entrepreneurship for I believe over twenty years now. You've founded multiple you know multi million dollar companies, Rowdy Energy, uh, Suja Juice, Nika Water, like the list goes on. Uh, I'd love for you to just kind of give maybe three to five minutes of how you got into entrepreneurship uh, and obviously to where you are now. Yeah, great, uh, Xander. Again, thank you so much for including me on your uh, podcast. It's a it's a privilege to uh, to be here. But um, yeah. I always thought when I was young that entrepreneurs, you know, had to be born, that they couldn't be made, that, you know, they were kind of these swashbuckling um, Ted Turners or, or you know, yeah. Richard Branson or people that were larger than life. And, you know, we, you know, mundane, middle of the road, 
middle America people really couldn't be entrepreneurs because we weren't born like John Wayne, you know, you, coming you mean, out. You weren't, just, yeah, you weren't just born this gunslinging, like, right. amazing CEO? I thought, I thought, yeah, I thought you had to be. And I was, I was so happy and excited when I realized that actually, you know, this is a, this is a skill set you can learn. You know, yeah. it's a playbook that you can create that you can you know, use plays that have worked with you in the past on other businesses, even if they might be different businesses. But, you know, there's a playbook, you know, to being successful, which is also one of the reasons why when people ask me, should they jump off and do their entrepreneurial venture? I, I, I most of the time say, you know, well, don't quit your day job quite so fast because, you know, it's really great to learn on someone else's nickel than your own nickel that is burning, yeah. you know, quickly through your, 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 your pockets. But to give you a little bit of perspective on my background, I, I went to, grew up in the Midwest and I went to school at Michigan State. I wasn't a very good high school student, so I didn't have a lot of great options um, out of, out of uh, high school, um, but a, a great place for me to be and, you know, really kind of learn the fundamentals of math and, and English that I must not have been paying attention to in high school because um, I certainly they didn't retain it, but, um, but learned about um, accounting. Um, my dad had been an accountant and, you know, I, I realized that accounting was kind of the language of business. And so I, you know, ended up doing a CPA, you know, route and spent four years with Ernst & Young, you know, a big uh, accounting and um, uh, consulting agency. And in my fourth year of being were, there- you were, a, you were a numbers and details guy. I was a numbers guy, yeah. And accountant, I call it a CPA, you know, cut, paste and attach, because that's kind of the, the basic level that you really do in the beginning as a CPA. But yep. a you know, great language of, of business to learn. And my last year there, I, you know, they let me do some M&A work, you know, build some financial models for companies that they were looking, their their portfolio, their principal companies were looking to make acquisitions in. And, you know, I really had began to have a love for, you know, merger and acquisition type stuff, which is really what kind of got me into the, the bug of wanting to do something entrepreneurially. That's amazing. So what was, what was the first business that you really started? My first business I started in high school was a parasail business up at my lake house in Western New York. And it was literally a, um, a, a speedboat that we would put a, attach a 300 foot rope to. And, you know, we bought this equipment and re retrofitted our boat. And, you know, we, we built a big T-section and, you know, we didn't have a lot of technology since 40 years ago. And, you know, we literally told the people uh, that we were, were paying us $20 a ride to run when the boat would hit it and they'd run and we'd lift the sail up and hopefully the sail would catch and, you know, they'd go on a 20 minute ride on the on the back of the boat. That was my first business when I was 15. But um, I guess a lot of liability in that that probably did, didn't properly. Did, uh, yeah. Did you have any? Did you have, like I'm listening to this, by the way, and me and me and my wife were just in Puerto Vallarta a few weeks ago. Yeah, we were there during a storm and there was a parasailer that the, the line broke. And I that saw that floated out like we were there when that happened. So that's all I can think of. I'm hoping yeah. you guys never had any issues like that. No, we didn't have any issues like that. Thank, thankfully, knock on, knock on wood. But you know, it wasn't wasn't for the the lack of uh, you know not preparing properly. But, um, yeah. but I, I really got the bug. Um, I'll give you a quick story of my entrepreneurial plunge. You know that I I you know started it as a high school um, senior and really um, you know kind of materialized when I really did take the plunge. I was 38, about 20 years later. But I was playing in a high school football game, I was a very mediocre uh, receiver, a tight end. And, you know, my team had lost every game my junior year and the first seven games of my senior year. So 
effectively we were 0 and 17 you know, in yeah. the first two years and you know we were um we were ahead by we were down we were down by like you know four points with two minutes to go and i'd already actually caught a touchdown pass in the game and a couple other passes so i actually had a pretty good game which was you know kind of unusual for me and you know we were the quarterback was ro rolling out we were down in about the other team's five yard line and i was in the end zone kind of rolling with the quarterback and i had this split second to you know to determine whether to raise my hand and have him see me and throw me the ball and potentially be the hero but also potentially be the goat if i drop if i yeah. drop the ball after after having already a pretty good game it felt like this second or half a millisecond was like an hour you know of me running and what do i raise my hand do i not raise my hand do i, I go for it or do i just stay at good yeah yeah and i and I, I didn't raise my hand quarterback got tackled we lost the game and we lost the next two games we went oh and 20 and for you know and for the next like 15 years i had this why did was i that much of a wishy that i couldn't raise my hand and say throw me the ball i just didn't want the attention you know on me and like what did i do wrong i mean what what was my mistake and there i was at 38 now 20 years later from that moment when i was 18 in high school and you know feeling like i'm on the high diving board you know blindfolded uh being told to jump that yeah. then but not sure there's water in the pool or not you know beneath me and i'm on the high board my mom and my wife are in the background saying honey you can do it jump jump and my mom you know of course you know i'd lose a football high school football game 55 to nothing and i'd get home and she'd say well i thought you played a really good job honey and yeah. you know you can do no wrong with your mom right and then my wife kind of came from nothing you know in uh from morocco and so she you know has always had a very risk tolerant you know approach on life and i'm midwestern probably a little bit more you know risk you know probably in the middle risk tolerant risk averse you know but but it certainly seems like much more you know risk averse than than her and being told to jump and i just couldn't you know i couldn't pull the trigger and i was channel surfing late one night and i was they were going around this group of senior citizens and they were asking them to reflect back on their livelihoods and what did they wish they had done differently and every single one of these senior citizens they were probably in their 70s and 80s, which is now closing in on me. And, you know, they, they were asked what they wish they'd done differently. Every single one of them wished that they had taken more professional risk in their career and that they felt like they had the goods and they did really well, they, but they weren't able to really jump that socioeconomic, you know, level or category into another, into another one, you know, because it's really hard on a linear basis to really do that. And, you know, I realized at that time, that that's what I, I don't want to be in that spot 25 years from you know now, which is kind of a, a coming up in the next five to 10 years, you know, for me. I don't want to look back and go, you know, I wish I would have taken the shot. And I'd rather, you know, I realized at that moment in time that 20 years ago, I was more afraid of, you know, I was more afraid of, um, of, of, of failure than I was of mediocrity. So yeah. I didn't want to take that risk, that plunge. You know, I didn't want to raise my hand. But 20 years later, I was more afraid of looking out the next 20 years and feeling mediocre and not really taking, you know, that shot when, you know, I, I don't mind failing. I just didn't, I don't want to be mediocre. So I went in and I quit my job and gave them six, nine months notice and started looking, looking for businesses to buy. And, you know, fortunately, the company that I had been at for 13 years kind of developing me and mentoring me, you know, was a company that was able to build some equity and to be able to invest in my first deal that I did. That's that's absolutely amazing. I, I just want to kind of echo that because I think what I'm hearing from you right now is 
Because I think this is a really big problem. There's so many people that want to be entrepreneurs. They want to do something more. They want to be success, quote unquote, successful. They want to do something different, right? But it sounds like it sounds like there's almost a tipping point for us. The tipping point that we actually start to go for it is the moment that we start to fear mediocrity and average more than we fear failure. Right. And I, I the way when you described that, I literally remember the moment that I quit Cisco. Yeah. Right. Because I, I, I had and I was a little bit better than mediocre. I was actually pretty good. I was making great money as a kid in his you know mid twenties, but it just felt normal to me. It felt average. It felt felt what everybody said successful was. You know, make a make you know two hundred thousand dollars a year, have great clients, you drive a BMW, all of that sort of stuff. But it wasn't until I really, like you mentioned, I started to realize that time was the only thing that we couldn't get back, right? Yeah, and, and I think uh, to that point, I, I think people, and this is a broad generalization, but people, you know, in your twenties, you know, if you work hard and you and you and you, you know, you know, know your craft and you know what you're doing, I do think people in their twenties get you get kind of a a real unique opportunity at some point in your twenties. You don't have to take it, but if you do take it, you know, it's it's going to either you know put you into one direction or another direction, but it won't be the status quo for sure. You know, but I also think, you know, it's okay if you don't take it, if you're not ready. But I think you get it in your 30s again, and I think you get it again in your 40s. But you may not get more than three or four or five or six, you know, opportunities along the way. And at some point, you know, by the time you hit 50, you kind of want to, if, if this is what you want to do is really be entrepreneurial, you got to take a swing at the, you know, at the, at the yeah. play on something, you know, because you don't want to be getting into your 50s and 60s. Because I, I know people that, at this stage in, in my life, you know, I can raise money, you know, generally very easily because I've got a pretty successful track record. But yeah. I know a bunch of people that, you know, are in their 50s and 60s and really don't have that, you know, successful track record. And the older you get, the even more important that track record gets, because if you can't have, you know, if you can't point to successful exits that you've had, where you've actually gotten a business up and down in terms of buy, build, you know, create, you know, and then sell, and monetize. I mean, that's you know that's a big deal to get it up and down and into the into the finish line, into the goal line, and I'm staying in bounds. But you know, so you know, if you can do that, there's a real value in that. But the older you are, if you haven't done it, it becomes more of a liability. So I do think yeah. taking that shot at some point between 20 and 50 makes a lot of, makes a lot of sense. It sounds it sounds like it, you know the obviously you know just because you're 40 or 50 doesn't mean you can't take the shot. Yeah. Right. You, you still can take the shot, but it sounds like the earlier you do it, you know, you might have multiple swings at the plate rather than maybe just one swing. Right. So it sounds like the earlier you can take that shot, the better. Yeah. And you mentioned earlier about, you know, that the, the being a, you know, what I've been doing for the last 22 years, of, which is, you know, I've been a very opportunistic entrepreneur. I haven't really, you know, I, I, when I look at businesses, you know, to acquire or to start, you know, I typically am looking at, you know, what are the things I can, you know, in any business that you start or, or buy, I mean, let's say you've got without anything else, you've got maybe a, you know, it's going to sound bad, but, but a, you know, 45, 55% chance of success, 40, yeah. 40, 60 chance of success. And, you know, what we're trying to do is almost like Vegas, you know, where you're, they're trying to set the odds. It's a little bit in their favor. If we can just tweak, you know, three or four things to make it a little bit more in our favor, then we de-risk, you know, that investment, you know, and, you know, you still have the same return profile, but you've just de-risked it, risk it. In my case, with Rowdy Energy, for example, 
my my partner, one of my partners is Kyle Bush, a NASCAR driver. And while you know NASCAR has never been a, a sport I really I focused in on, um, I do now every religiously, kind of every Sunday now. But um, <laughs> uh, but you know when you have a celebrity athlete as your partner, you know who gets up on national television weekly and has a rowdy can in his in his hands talking about it. You know that that helps you shift that. A little bit more you're, in your favor when you you're definitely de-risking because you've got marketing there happening constantly and yeah. exactly exactly and it's you know it's just about shifting that and you can it doesn't have to be a celebrity it can be you've got something disruptive in the product yeah you know that you've got you've got some intellectual property that you can protect the product you've got a really unique individual that really understands you know what you're trying to do so that you can use that person in a collaborative you know way to create value for your business so so that's yeah. I want to I want to ask you some of those types of questions, right? Because we hear, you know, everybody's watched Shark Tank and you hear different things about, um, you know, investing in certain types of businesses and, and those sorts of things. Um, you just brought up an interesting point. Um, what are your thoughts on, you know, like the people versus the idea, right? Because you said, you know, it's the intellectual property that can be a really good thing or, and you also just brought up, it can be actually be an individual that gives you the leg up and gives you the higher percentage chance of success. I think, right? yeah, I, think I think for sure in, in the, in the, you know, there's early stage businesses in whatever industry, but let's say high growth, whether it's tech or, you know, CPG, consumer packaged goods and in my yeah. case, but in either one where you've got, you know, you know, short, you know, windows of, you know, of, of life cycle, you know, there where you've got to get something up and down quickly. In the very, very beginning, people are everything. I mean, the idea is you got to be there. It's got to, you know, be there. But really, it's about in the in the early stage of these emerging brands, it's about the entrepreneur is kind of strapping, you know, the team on his back or her back, and they're climbing up to the top of the mountain. And it's yeah. how, good of, how good is that single entrepreneur, you know, that is going to, and how committed and resolved is he or she that they're going to, they're going to get this team to the top of the mountain no matter what, even if it's, you yeah. know, not the most optimal idea, but they've got that desire to win and that skill set. And then as you get to a more, you know, evolved growth company where you've got much more professional management, you know, involved, it's much less about the individuals and more about, you know, do these, you know, managers have the tool set that they know that can really scale a business from, you know, yeah. from a hundred million to wherever it's going to be in revenue. But that first hundred million or the first, 40 or 50 million is really about that entrepreneur strapping the you know product to his or her back and getting to the top. I think the idea becomes even more and more important the further you go along, because if it's yeah. not ultimately a disruptive idea, then it's either a fad and it's going to come and go, or there's just not going to be a need for the, you know, is there really a need for this product? That's, that's amazing insight, um, especially you know, for someone whose whose goal is to grow up to that forty million and and forty million dollar mark, I kind of have a little bit of a runway and some some road mapping for me. Well, congratulations! I hear you're making the Inc. Five Thousand. Uh yeah. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. We missed the Inc. Five Hundred just by a little bit, so yeah, uh, we'll have to make sure that we hit it next year. Um, awesome! Congratulations. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so actually, that's a that's a good point because I think there's there's probably you know there's probably a lot of entrepreneurs that are listening to this that are really at the early stage startup, right? Maybe they're, you know, maybe they're solopreneurs. They're just getting their first six figures up and running. Um, you've been at the beginning of a lot of different ideas. And, and it sounds like, you know, for, for you, kind of what you're saying in the very beginning, it's, it's a lot the entrepreneur that's going to get it to the first seven figures, multiple seven figures and eight figures. Do you have any insights for that, that starting entrepreneur or solo entrepreneur, maybe things that they should focus on, maybe mindsets that they should embody? 
Yeah, um, for sure. Well, I always look at, you know, the first thing is, is, is there, you know, is there white space? Um, is there consumer white space opportunity? In, um, in the market. In the market for the product yeah. based on how you're positioning whatever the product is. For example, with Rowdy, we're, you know, we're launching a, um, a calorie burning product that has thermogenics in it that by just consuming a can of it, you're actually going to burn 130 calories in it, um, you know, through these through these amino acids that we're adding into it. So we think that people that want to, you know, burn calories, but also, you know, have a you know healthy energy drink, all natural. Yeah. It's a good product fit. And because energy drinks skew so much more male, female, we feel like this will fit, fit into like a, a, a female white space opportunity for us. And it's going to be yeah. zero sugar and taste a little bit less sweet than traditional rowdy. So we feel like it's a really good positioning. And from a retailer standpoint, because these products go through retail, you know, through wholesale distribution for us, there has to be a reason that a retailer is going to want to add you that isn't just swapping out one for one yeah. or something else. There's got to be some incrementality. There's got to be consumer white space and retailer incrementality, you know, to me, for a product to kind of, is there a need for this, you know, product? So that's kind of, you know, num num you know, number one. And then, you know, I always look at, you know, is this, you know, if this works, how big of a market opportunity is this? Because, you know, it's really easy with Excel for us to, you know, look and see and think that, oh, this thing can be a billion dollar brand in a couple of years. But let's really look at it and look at what, you know, a conservative approach on the, that is. And, you know, how much if it takes 10 this is, years. This is where this is where Ernst and Young Jeff comes back from the dead. And yeah, he's probably. he's the one looking at all these numbers. <laughs> Probably it's just about being having a conservative lens on it because we we're optimists, especially yeah. entrepreneurs, and we you know we think things are gonna you know things tend to take about twice as long to to get done and implemented and, and about twice as much as to to spend on as you think you know it would normally I, cost. Can we can we hit on that for a second? Because I think that's actually really important for a lot of starting entrepreneurs. Um, I've I I have a very unpopular opinion that I put out that basically you know, says like entrepreneurship is hard, like this life is hard. And if you think it's going to be easy, like you're in the wrong space. And part of it, I think is it's, it's easier than ever now to become an entrepreneur, right? You can become an entrepreneur with a cell phone and a laptop and a social media, which you can, you, you already have your cell phone and your laptop, you can get a social media for free. So it's easier than ever to get into the space. But because of that low barrier for entry, um, I think everybody and that all because of social media, they see, you know, this person that built a eight figure business in a year and this person that built a, you know, multiple eight figure business in 37 minutes or something. I don't know. Right. right. Um, so people have these very skewed expectations of what it takes to be an entrepreneur and be successful. Um, so I'd love for you to hit on that a little bit, like to build your business, it's going to take twice as long. It's going to be twice as hard and it's going to maybe cost you twice as much as you think. Like, can you expand on that a little? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, that and, you know, you're going to use up all of your emotional capital, you, your, I call them deposits, the emotional bank account that you've yeah. built up with your family. So, you know, <laughs> you better be prepared for that. And, and the other thing I think is, you know, are you and if you do have a significant other, you know, are you and your significant other aligned from a risk, you know, profile, you know, perspective? And what I mean by that is, you know, what I mentioned a little bit earlier at the start, my wife and I come from different backgrounds and I was I was if you look at a continuum of you know risk tolerant you know where you know you're you know blow and go you're ready to take throw the you know roll the dice and you're really ready to go that's at one extreme 
and then there's you know um, you know uh, you know risk you know um, uh, avoidance. So you know where you don't want to take risk, and you know hopefully as an entrepreneur you want to be I, I say right of center because we're optimists because yeah. we're always going to be glass as entrepreneurs half full. But we you want to have your I say it a lot your feet on the ground and your head in the clouds. So you yeah. want to be you want to be dreaming you know, and at a cloud level of, you know, white space and really opportunities, but you want to have your feet kind of firmly planted on the ground, because if you, you know, if you're just a dreamer, you're going to spend your way in oblivion. And if it doesn't- You're, you're floating off in space, you're never going to accomplish anything. Yeah. And, if, and if you're too conservative and you're not thinking broadly enough, then you're not going to create interest and sizzle from investors and, and people that really think you're going to be able to, you know, people want to invest in businesses from an equity standpoint, because they think it's going to grow in value. And if you paint the picture of, you know, a, you know, mundane business that's not going to really, you know, like the world in favor from a growth standpoint, they're, they're not going to think you're the right manager to kind of, you, know, you know, lead double digit growth and doubling a company every 12 to 18 months. That's amazing. Um, you mentioned something that I, I don't want to overlook. And before we started the show, uh, you know, I kind of pointed out, um, you know, Jeff, I, I, have the the privilege of knowing most of your family and not only have you been a a very successful entrepreneur but you have a phenomenal set of kids an amazing wife an amazing family community and and um tribe i guess and so i'd love for you to just dig on that for a little bit like how how do you do both because i think there's a lot of people out there that believe you know if i'm going to be and maybe they're taught this from media or whatever it might be like it's one or the other right you have your you have your family or you have your your commute or your business you can't have both yeah a good question and i thank you for the compliment i yeah. it's one of the things that you know it's one of the greatest feelings that my wife linda and i have is when we get a compliment on one of our kids and um and you know they weren't you know a couple of them and in particular the one that works with you you know was not necessarily easy um, as a kid, but you know, I've, I've learned heard that. I've heard about his his sprinkles escapades. So. Yeah, he's had quite a few that probably aren't ready for prime time here. But um, but I uh, but what I learned about that over the long run with kids is sometimes I call them short leash kids and long leash kids. And some kids you can you know keep on a really a long leash because you know they just they they kind of will get the boundaries you know when you set them. And others are short leash kids. And you know, Josh was definitely a short leash kid. But what I learned over time was that that short lease really was intellectual curiosity. Um, and, you know, it turned out to, he's turned out to be one of the most intellectually curious people, as you know, that I know, certainly. So I'm certainly, yeah. you know, pr proud of him. But, you know, the funny thing about, you know, our kids, is, and, and I have to give, you know, 80 plus percent to the, the woman of the year, my wife, who for 32 years of being married to me and, and four kids later, um, you know, she's really the, you know, the secret sauce that, you know, keeping it together. But, you know, for me, and, you know, I, I like to think of three buckets of time that I have in my life. You know, one is, you know, my work, whatever that is at the time. One is my family. And then one is, you know, my health or my other, you know, you know, important things, whether it be spiritual or what have you that are important to me. And what I learned a long time ago is when I feel like I'm doing really well at one of those three, I'm usually doing really crappy at the other two. Yeah. Um, so it's when I feel like I'm doing mediocre, you know, if, when I feel like I'm, I'm like a six or a seven out of 10 on all three of them, that I'm usually pretty optimized in my in, in how I'm approaching life. And and I don't think you have to always be balanced, you know, a third, a third, a yeah. third in those buckets. But I think it's kind of like the, you know, the Stephen Covey deposits in the emotional bank account. 
you know, concept that you can't be overdrawn for too long or you're going to get yeah. your loan, your loan called. So for me, when I feel like I'm, you know, kind of mediocre at each of those three things, I'm usually pretty balanced. And sometimes I know I'm going to be overbalanced for, you know, I'm going on a climb and that's important to me. I'm, I'm taking a little bit of, you know, withdrawal of the emotional bank account from the other buckets, but I'm going to replenish them because if I don't, yeah. you know, I can't be overdrawn. I think I think that's really important too because I think a lot of people a lot of people are very aware of this idea of balancing you know their self care their family time their relationships their their business and entrepreneurial life um, but because of that they almost get afraid to go too far in one direction for a little bit um, you know I, I obviously for uh, and you're kind of aware of this because I mentioned it to you but we're launching our book right and so I basically told Maddie when we got back from Puerto Vallarta like hey babe these next two months like. I'm, I'm going to be emotionally drawn from, from us because I'm going to be pretty heavy in the book launch and being able to communicate that to her. So she understood was really important. Um, but understanding you are going to have times where you're going to go, you know, heavy in one direction. And then, you know, this December, we're going to go spend a month in Costa Rica. Right. So I'm going to go heavy in that direction. Um, I think that's really important for people to, to be able to do as well. Right. Yeah. Because you can't be the same level at all times. The other thing that I learned, my dad, who was a successful um, CFO at a company, uh, but was very a di very different person you know, when he was at work than he was at home, and not necessarily bad or good, you know, but very you know dictatorial and um, you know directional at the office. And then he would try to bring that same you know attitude home. My 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 mom wouldn't let him bring it <laughs> home. And I learned you know early on. I call it WYSIWYG. What you see is what you get. But if you can be the same person at work as you are at home, you know you never have to worry about which person is showing up. And, you know, I think a lot of people try to act differently at work and at home and, and with their friend groups. For me, you know, having my my work people where you spend so much of your time, also a big part of my friend group, you know, has always been a really important, you know, thing for, for me and for my wife and I. Yeah, you better you better feel like you're not having to fake one or the other because you're putting a ton of time in each of them. So, yeah, you know, you mentioned about kids and you know, how we were able to do it. We, we were um, uh, and our kids have become much more cerebral than I ever was for sure. But I, but I, you know, we, we, we would never promote, um, you know, we didn't care what grades they got as long as they got the great, the, the best marks in, in, um, you know, in good behavior and, you know, morality and, and those kind of, you know, you know, those kind of marks, those were the most important things to us. They were much more important to us than getting an A in math or an A in English. Um, what we cared is what you didn't get the, the box checked that you know, doesn't apply themselves that you know, no matter what, you know, you're working hard and you're applying yourself. And if that means you get a B or C, I, we don't give a crap about that. That was yeah. never, that was never important to us. And we also never over program programmed them. I, I, my wife and I laugh a lot about some of these parents that like, you know, they've got three things going on at one time. It's like play is probably the most important thing for kids to be able to do when they're yeah. kids, because we lose that so fast as we get, older and to have that taken prematurely because you've got, you know, three different, you know, sports or piano lessons or whatever. It's just don't overprogram your kids. Let them be kids. I will tell you right now that Joshua is definitely not overprogrammed. That man knows yeah. how to play more than anybody I have ever met. So you did a great job there. <laughs> nice. Well, there's a little bit, there's a little bit of the thing that I'm from the old school, you know, baby boomer, the secret to working a successful 40 hour work week is to work 80. Um, which I know a lot of your listeners probably, yeah, they don't, they don't like that. Like my kids are reading the book, The Secret to a Successful Four-Hour Workweek. 
or whatever that yeah. book is. So it's like I think we're at a bit of a just uh, you know a bit of a difference of opinion, but they seem to be able to be thinking about how to scale things, you know, with um, limited resources. So I got to give them credit for that. Yeah, love that. So question for you, because obviously you've got a, we talked about it, you've, you've built multiple companies, uh, you've got an amazing family, you keep going. So what, what would you define success in life for you? Uh, success, you know, really clearly for me and for my wife is to, you know, leave, you know, um, the 2.0 versions of ourselves, you know, in our kids and hopefully yeah. the 3.0 versions of you know themselves and ourselves and you know, their grand their their kids and our grandkids um, and you know leave this place this planet a better place than you know what we inherited it I mean that's you know to me is if I if we can if we can have if we can leave you know send four ambassadors and our kids out into the world to be better human beings and we've been and support you know the values that we believe that's you know success to me. Business is a means to a end, you know, for that. It's a vehicle, you know, for that. It, it's a, it's really a vehicle for lifestyle, you know, to be able to live the lifestyle that we want to be able to live and raise the kids, raise the kids, the raise the raise our kids the way that we, you know, want to raise them. But it's definitely not an end, an end all. I mean, leaving this place in a better way is really the is, is the end goal. And and you know, doing some things. You know, my wife and I have you know written a book called Advice from Mom and Dad. And it's really more so than anything been stories, short stories of, you know, what worked for us in raising our kids. And um, we really did it for our kids. But, you know, it's gotten to the point now that we've been doing it for 25 years and, you know, potentially putting something like that out yeah. in the press that, you know, others can hopefully benefit from, from a learning standpoint, I think is, you know, I, I, we also have a desire of, I think there's an untapped resource in our elders and the knowledge and wisdom that they have. And, I've always wanted to write a book, The Wisdom of the Ages, where, you know, you're interviewing, you know, people that are seniors and, you know, just understanding, getting the wisdom out of them, because I think they, you know, from, you know, too all too often get kind of forgotten out there and they move slow. They don't hear well. And as I quickly become that person over time, <laughs> I, I, I want to change my attitude towards it. Well, it's, it, you know, it sounds like wisdom from the elders is really the reason, one of the major reasons you got into entrepreneurship anyways, right? It was you know, wisdom from the elders talking about their biggest regrets in life. So I think that's, I think that's yeah. really important too. Yeah. Good point. Um, so one, one last question for, you You know, I know, I know you went to Michigan state, um, you went to Harvard business as well, I believe. Yeah. So having now been an entrepreneur for, for multiple decades, what's, what's one thing that maybe you didn't get in school that you wish was taught in, in either Harvard or Michigan State? Um, well, one of the concepts that I believe really strongly in is don't look great, get in the way of good. Um, yeah. And what I mean by that is, um, you know, oftentimes, you know, er, new entrepreneurs, they want to get something 100% right. They want to get it perfect. Yeah. They want to get it perfect. And, you know, I, I can tell you, you know, dozens of perfect launches of, of companies that were People were at it for four or five years and never launched a product. You know, I, I'm a really big believer in, you know, and there there are certain things where this doesn't apply, like legal contracts. You know, where but in general, you know, we got to get things eighty to ninety percent of the way done, and we got to move on to the next thing, and then we yeah. can perfect something in the market by getting feedback. But until you start getting live, independent consumer feedback, 
you know, or, or whatever, whatever the proof of concept validation is that you need for your product. Until you start getting that, there's no sense in continuing to, you know, obsess over tweaking something and making it perfect, you know? Because you, you, know, you don't know what perfect is yet. No, you don't know what perfect is. And you don't even know if you need perfect. Per the cost, usually the, the time required to get something from 85% to 100% done is more than the time, you know, required to get it to 85% done. Right. So you have to pick and choose the things that you want to be perfect about, like a legal contract where you're going to be looking back on it and going how, we're, you know, it could be interpreted. You know, that's important for you to get perfect, you know, but a, you know, product launch, you know, get get it out there in, in a controlled way where you're not like pushing it out everywhere, but do a little mini proof of concept somewhere where you can get some organized feedback on it, you know, and then tweak it, you know, over time. And you'll just get much better results in terms of what you're doing. And you won't like frustrate your team because there's nothing more frustrating to a team than to feel like you're constipated. And look, we've got everything to the one yard line, but the, the leader isn't here to make the decision. And that person is yeah. not accessible. Yeah, I love that. We, you know, we, we have a, we have a saying in our community, we call it done is better than perfect. Right. And I think, I think that perfection paralysis over analyzing may be one of the single biggest problems for, for entrepreneurs. Uh, and a lot of it comes back to the fear, like you mentioned, the fear of failing, the fear of being judged for an imperfect product that they're putting out there to the world because their name is stamped to it. When the reality is you have to get, you know, you have to get that, that imperfect product out there, the MVP, if you will, minimum viable product to actually go learn what a perfect product actually looks like. Right, exactly. And, I, and I, the other thing I think for, you know, newer entrepreneurs is, you know, be really wary of dilution, you know, and, and you know, partners that you bring in. I can't yeah. tell you how many, I, I know at least a half a dozen entrepreneurs that built entities worth more than $100 million in value and, and got out less than 2 or $3 million, you know, from each of those ventures. And, you know, I know some that did far, far, far better, you know, but, you know, there is a tendency early on to, you know, have, you know, Jimmy has some really good sales accounts and Jimmy might be able to bring, you know, Qualcomm as a customer. So we're going to all of a sudden make Jimmy a partner in, in our, in our yeah. tech, in our tech business. And Jimmy may have a relationship. He may not, you know, he may end up being a good salesperson. He may not, you know, but, you know, you just have potentially put somebody in as a blockage for potentially a chief sales officer that you might ultimately need to put in. As yeah. well as you may have just paid a phenomenal value for that whatever Jimmy's you know contact is that we you know, may not ever get Qualcomm you know yeah. or may not have anything to do with him. So you know there's lots of different ways to structure incentives for people that you're not sure are going to be part of the long-term team you know of your business and you know you don't want to muck up your cap table or your dilution in, in for for really no reason. Yeah, I love that. Beautiful. Jeff, this has been super powerful. I think, I think our audience is going to get a ton from this. Um, is there, is there somewhere that we can send everybody to check out Rowdy Energy or anywhere uh, they can check out more about yeah, you? Yeah, sure. Uh, dot, uh, com. you know, so uh, www.rowdyenergy.com. So check it out. Um, and uh, there's lots of, you know, stuff on the website. We're in the, we have 10 flavors, seven of them are zero sugar, three are, um, are reduced sugar, and then everything's natural, um, better for you. Uh, one of the very few, you know, better for you natural drinks on the market. But uh, uh, if you use the code Jeff20, capital J-E-F-F-20, -F you get 20% off on any orders over 35 bucks in the free shipping. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jeff.
Uh, this has been absolutely great. Uh, and for all of our shit you don't learn in college fans out there, if you've gotten any value from this podcast, don't forget to go to www.sidlicbook.com. That's S-Y-D-L-I-C book.com to grab your pre-sale copy of the shit you don't learn in college book open now. Uh, it's going to be an absolute game changer. Everybody who buys the book during this pre-sale launch will get over $3,000 in bonus trainings and programs. Uh, so you want to head over there right now to make sure that you get it. So sidlickbook.com, check it out now. Awesome. Thank you, Xander. Thank you, Jeff. All right. That's all we have for today, folks. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Shit You Don't Learn in College. And if you did, please share this episode on your social media and tag at Xander Fryer. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and give us a five-star rating so you don't miss any other great episodes. We can only spread our message when you share this knowledge with the others that need it. So we really appreciate the support. Thanks a ton.